been a long time coming, so I'm happy to announce the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon. We need a place to get everyone together where we can talk about important things like sourcing, college tuition, taking exams, typewriter repair, liquor with important historical connections, network error codes, does CBD oil actually work, and if you named a range of cigars after members of Washington's cabinet, which shapes would be named after which cabinet members? And I should say that all of these have been topics of pre- and post-podcast banter with guests. As a member and patron of Historically Thinking, you will get access to a range of benefits, including a weekly podcast only for Common Room members, regular discussion questions from members to be used in all the podcasts, as well as the ability to choose topics for future podcasts, competitions and prizes, and priority access to future gatherings and course offerings with more benefits to follow. We will continue to produce our regular podcast, still available for free on Monday in your regular podcast feed. We hope you'll enjoy being part of Historically Thinking by joining the Common Room at Patreon. And thank you for supporting Historically Thinking's mission. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to www.historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Storytelling, writes my guest Jonathan Gottschall, is the art by which humans have, for thousands of years, not only bound themselves together into communities, but used to create civilization. But storytelling is also the art of forcing people apart, manipulating one another, and destroying the capacity to think rationally, thereby destroying civilization. Behind our greatest ills, Gottschall argues, are mind-disordering stories. This dual capacity is the story paradox. This paradox naturally has implications for how we tell stories about the past and how we read stories about the past. Jonathan Gottschall is a Distinguished Research Fellow in the English Department at Washington and Jefferson College in Washington, Pennsylvania. He's the author most recently of The Story Paradox, How Our Love of Story Builds Societies and Tears Them Down, which is the focus of our conversation today. Jonathan Gottschall, welcome to Historically Thinking. Uh, I'm glad to be here, Al. Thank you for having me on. So uh, let's start with a revelation in a bar. I like to believe that revelations can come in bars, uh, even when you're not <laughs> drinking. Uh, and yeah. you had one. So tell, yeah. describe what you saw. Well, uh, yeah, I was in a bar. Um, I guess this was early, right before the pandemic uh, broke out. And my, I had a colleague read this book, and they said to me, really, you go to bars to, to write? Because I was feeling kind of writer's block, and I had gone to a bar to, to write. Not so much to write, really. It's to jot down ideas and just kind of to think and as I drowned my sorrows. Um, and the truth is that about, I don't know, six times a year, maybe 10 times a year. Yeah, I do do that. Um, well, so why I, go not? This I mean, people go to coffee shops. Why not bars? That's a great question. That's a great question. I, I don't, and there's a long tradition of, of writers, you know, as you know, I'm sure, uh, going to bars to write. Uh, so, it's, so, but, but, but my colleague was kind of, uh, suspicious of that because it seemed like I guess like too writerly of a story. It's interesting. The, the the second page or the third page says, never trust a storyteller. That's sort of like the big lesson of the book, never trust a storyteller. And my colleague uh, didn't trust me on this one. She's like, huh, I think this guy's shaping this story. I think, 
So she was uh, already suspicious. But this was a true story. I go into the bar and I'm sitting there uh, drinking and thinking and jotting down ideas. And I notice, you know, I start, I start looking around the bar and notice what people are doing. And everyone is sort of uh, talking and gesturing. And the people on the TVs are doing the same things. And the waiters are, are communicating. And I had this kind of uh, revelation that, oh, this is what human beings do. Um, what do human beings do more than any other thing? Is it that they sleep? Is it that they work? No, I think it's that they communicate. They're just constantly communicating. And that bar was just this hive of uh, buzzing uh, communication. So the book starts off with this concept of sway. That sway, influence, is the overriding function of virtually all communication. And that storytelling isn't just one form of communication among others. It's the most powerful way that human beings have of swaying each other so hard that we may stay bent forever. So I was sort of focusing, we think about story as kind of like, I don't know, we have all the connotations about storytelling are positive. We think of bedtime stories and books and Netflix films that we love. But story, uh, for all the good that it does, is also really dangerous and causes a lot of harm. And that's the heart of the story paradox, the title of my book. That stories are the very best things in the world, and at the same time, also the very worst things in the world. So the... Uh the beauty of the image of sway is that we sway back and forth like a tree in mm -hmm. the wind of, of, of stories, the wind of conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those but words. Sometimes, yeah. But words sometimes for we say something. Bent. Yes. Yes. And if you, and sometimes it's very, you know, you sway one way, the, the words that we use, words are for something. We don't just throw them around for no reason. They're instrumental. Um, so we're trying to, you know, make a friend we're trying to get someone to pass us the salt. We're trying to create some sort of influence, some sort of effect in the world. And sometimes the effect is very brief. You know, you pass me the salt and it's over with. And sometimes, you know, you are exposed to an incredibly powerful mythological story, like a story contained in a holy book, and it bends you. You never sway back the other way. You stay bent forever. And stories have special capacities to produce these sorts of really, really powerful effects. Uh, the book like sort of gives an overview of maybe two to three decades of research showing that stories have special, unique power as tools of communication and tools of persuasion. When it comes to virtually any outcome that a communicator might care about, do people pay attention? Uh, do they learn? Do they remember? Uh, do they, are they persuaded? Do they themselves retell the story and pass it along through their own social networks? Uh, the research is very clear that as a rule, dramatization, telling stories, beats argumentation, uh, giving an argument and sort of backing it up uh, with evidence. And by the way, uh, I just want to make one caveat here or clarification here. Um, when I talk about story, I'm talking about story of all kinds. I'm not talking about fiction stories. I'm not talking about nonfiction stories. I'm not just talking about gossip or history stories. I'm talking about literally every form of storytelling that I can conceive of. And mm -hmm. I argue that whether or not it's a story is irrespective of the fact or fictionality of the content of the story. 
What a story is, is a way of structuring information in a predictable and organized sort of way. Yes. That's, uh, so this covers, it covers songs, it covers video games, it covers tweets. Um, and not to skip around the book too much, you tell the apocryphal Hemingway story. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the best short <coughs> story, the best story. Could you, in six words, is it? Yes. Yes. He, uh, should, I, should I tell it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's an apocryphal story, and you know the story goes something like this. Um, Hemingway and his buddies are out at a bar, and they're sitting around at a, at a table, and they're boozing it up. And Hemingway, who's you know supposed to be some sort of you know uh, masculine uh, braggart, uh, begins to brag that his storytelling prowess is so great that he can pack all of the power of a great novel into just six words. And his friends say, uh, bull, you can't do that. And so he bets them $10 each and they all take the bet because they, they think they have him. And he writes on a napkin the following words. How does it go? I, this is how bad my memory. I can't. Is, I can't remember uh, the, the six for words. For sale, baby. For sale. Yeah, I, I met, that was the one sentence I didn't have. Yeah. For sale. Period. Baby shoes. Period. Never worn. Period. And the he passes that napkin around to the whole table, and there's this little kind of pause while the reader of that little story uh, takes in the information, and there's sort of a click in their mind, and they get it. And the story seems to suggest that there's this, you know, uh, couple uh, who's uh, had a had a had a pregnancy and had started preparing for it, buying baby shoes, for instance. It seems like the pregnancy didn't go so well, or maybe the baby died. Um, and then you have uh, all the sadness uh, the, the, of these little baby shoes that have never been worn. And you know, according to the tale. Uh, Hemingway's friends all admit that he uh, fulfilled his side of the bet, and they all they all pay up. Now, this almost certainly uh, never happened. Um, it's almost certain that that Hemingway was not the one to come up with this story, but it still suggests something about the the power of storytelling, and you know how how compact a story can be, and still deliver that a massive emotional wallop. Um, and it suggests how much work that story audiences are doing, you know, in our own imaginations. There's a lot in that story that Hemingway doesn't need to write because the reader's brain supplies it. And then finally, there's one other crucial thing about this story that helps explain its power. And I have this anecdote under a section of the book called The Science of Show, Don't Tell. Yes, yes. And this is a great example of a story that shows and doesn't tell. Um, he doesn't spell everything out. We have to figure things out. And when we have to figure it out ourselves, we kind of feel like the meaning of the story was self-generated instead of being something that Hemingway led us to, or the author of this little story led us to inexorably. Um, and one of the cool things about the, the scientific research on storytelling is that stories are most persuasive and most powerful in their effects when they follow this rule of show, don't tell. As soon as authors or filmmakers or podcasters, whoever's telling your story, uh, begins spelling everything out, stories 
lose a little bit of their power as uh, persuasive communication. They might still be really entertaining, but they don't seem to have so much influence on how we feel and how we think, and then finally on how we behave. So early on in the book, you say the chief lesson of the book, the one that you hope people take away is never trust a storyteller. Um, there's something ironic about this, as you've already alluded to, as your <laughs> colleague realized, yeah. uh, since you just told a story. Yeah. Um, and we're going to get, there's, there's something deeply ironic about warnings against storytellers. We'll get to that in just a sec, mm -hmm. but what do you, what do you, what do you mean by never trust a storyteller? Boy, it's hard to know what I mean by it. I guess the, it's, 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 a, it's a, you know, the whole book is, is sort of a justification of that. So it's kind of hard to boil down. I guess I might come at it this way. Um, one is, again, we just have all of these positive connotations around storytelling. I wrote a book about 10, 11 years ago called, 10 years ago, called The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. And it was sort of a celebration of the storytelling impulse in human life. And it was really, you know, it didn't deny that there were negatives around storytelling, but it certainly didn't uh, dwell on them. And after that, I became enmeshed in what I call the storytelling industrial complex. And the storytelling industrial complex <laughs> is sort of a network of gurus and keynote speakers and consultants who travel around the country and give people advice about, you know, how stories work, what works in storytelling, how you can go about telling them, why you should do so, and all of this stuff. And it, it, this is based on what I see in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. This is a huge business. It's a I huge mean, business. Small, yeah. yeah. For, at least for humanists. For humanists, it's a huge business. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it... it, yeah. it uh, it the, the storytelling industrial complex um, going traveling around, particularly and giving keynote uh, speeches, has sort of funded my 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 writing career. You know, over the last mm -hmm. decade, you know, I was able to quit teaching uh, for the most part um, and focus on this. Um, but being out on the road and, and mixing with these people, I started to feel guilty because I realized that the main message being pushed. And by all of these specialists was something as simple as this stories are good. And I never believed that stories were good. I always believed that stories were really powerful and that they had equal capacity pretty much to do good or harm, you know, depending on the goals of the storyteller. And so I'm just trying to jar people out of their sort of naive and I think quite natural um, tendency to see stories as an inherently positive and good thing in human life. So just to give one example of what I'm talking about. Out on the road, as a part of the storytelling industrial complex, I heard and actually said myself that one of the most wonderful things about stories is how they generate empathy. Um, they help us understand each other. They help us connect with each other. Um, they help us see what it would be like to walk in the shoes of somebody very unlike ourselves. And there's wonderful research to back this up. And I think it's all true and it's all good and it's all dangerously one-sided. Uh, when people talk about story-generated empathy, they genuinely seem not to notice that there is a very different sort of empathy-dependent energy generated 
and circulating in our stories. And it wouldn't be far wrong to call that energy circulating in our stories hate. We hate the villain of the story. Um, we want to see them punished. We want to see them uh, jailed. We want to see them humiliated. We want to see them, in many cases, killed. We actually want them to die at the end of the story. Right. And there's a phrase for this uh, a philosopher came up with. His name is Fritz Breithaupt, I believe. I'm, I might be pronouncing his name wrong. But he calls it empathetic sadism. And this is this wonderful feeling. We all love this feeling of the joy and the pleasure most people get when the antagonist of a story gets his comeuppance, when he is jailed, humiliated, or killed uh, by the hero. And so people focus on all the good things stories can do and how they can bring us together, but they don't talk about how this sort of villainization that runs through storytellings uh, helps us uh, divide ourselves into us and them categories and helps us justify you know, hating each other, uh, punishing each other, sometimes even killing each other. Right. So, and, and all the while remaining the hero of our story and wanting to be, even as we do terrible things, wanting to, everyone to understand that we're a deeply empathetic, uh, as well as heroic character. Yeah. I, I think here of your discussion of the Squirrel Hill killing. Oh yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah. I, I opened the book with, with, uh, very close to the beginning of the book, I, I talk about this man. Um, he lived practically next door to me, you know, 10, 10 miles away from my home. And this man had the misfortune of falling into an internet rabbit hole where he learned that Jews were the great vampires of history. And there was no one with him down that hole to inform him that the story wasn't true. Uh, so believing the story, as he did, he gets into his truck, he drives to the leafy, prosperous Pittsburgh neighborhood of Squirrel Hill, uh, about half hour from where I live. Uh, he goes into the Tree of Life synagogue and he begins shooting the place up, yelling, all Jews must die. He actually yelled that, all Jews must die. He kills 11 people, he wounds many more, and it's all because he is lost inside this ancient dumb fiction story about evil Jews. And from inside that demented story, what he did actually made sense. And yeah. I tell the story because to me, it's such a vivid microcosm of this power that stories have to just flood and engulf our minds and really drive us toward something like madness. And so the book lays out what I claim to be a great law of history. And it's that, and I'll just quote from the book pretty much here, it's that monsters behave like monsters all the time. But to get good people, otherwise decent people, to behave monstrously, you first have to tell them a story, a, a big lie, a dark conspiracy, some sort of all-encompassing political or religious mythology. The kind of story, you have to tell them the kind of story that turns a really, really bad thing, like murdering a bunch of geriatric worshipers in a synagogue into a really good thing. Because at the end of that episode, the Tree of Life shooter uh, said, hey, you know, you think I'm the monster, but I'm, I'm not the monster. Uh, look closer. I am the hero who risks everything 
to slay the monster. Um, and so this is, again, to me, I, t- I tell that story because, and I remind people of that story, it's a very painful story, because it's an illustration of the story paradox, this idea at the heart of the book, that stories do all this good. They do a great deal of good. No one doubts this, but they are also doing a lot of harm. Yeah, it's interesting when, when, when people when people talk about the benefits of story and creating story and God help us creating your brand, which is creating a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we when people talk about stories in this in this very at most two dimensional way, <laughs> mm-hmm. when they're actually four dimensions at work in the story, um, they're uh, not taking stories very seriously. Yeah. Uh, and I've always, it's always so fascinating to me. I love, I've, I've loved in the past teaching Plato's Republic. Mm. Um, and I love, especially, uh, I love teaching very earnestly that of course Plato is right to ban the poets from the, the ideal <laughs> yes. city. Because at least Plato's taking stories seriously and you idiots aren't. Absolutely. Because yeah. um, so let's, we could, I could spend the rest, next 50 minutes talking about <laughs> Plato and the Republic. But let's, yeah. let's, I mean, Let's talk about Plato's uh, desire to control the poets. Well, first, um, let me say and, that I, it, I agree with you. We could we could spend all day, all year uh, talking about Plato's yeah. Republic. One of the problems I had in the book was fighting off Plato. Um, as yeah. I'm writing the book, I'm like, I'm saying to myself, like, hmm, there's no better way not to produce a bestseller than to write endlessly about Plato in this book. Um, yep. But he kept tempting me to... Uh, just you know you, you get engaged with dragging you back in just yeah you think keeps dragging mm-hmm. me back in exactly uh yeah so plato um was very very concerned about storytelling and storytellers uh 2400 years ago he wrote the republic uh we don't know exactly but the date but maybe it's if, if the the traditional date by the traditional date it's been about 2402 years ago uh that mm-hmm. the republic <laughs> uh, appeared um and 2,400 years ago, he already had his hair on fire about the concerns that I raise in my book. Uh, he com- compares stories to drugs. Uh, storytelling is a drug. And it's not only um, uh, something that brings you into an altered state of consciousness. It's a, it's a, he thinks of story in the way that drug warriors would think of Schedule One drugs, drugs that are so dangerous to the individual and so dangerous to society that they either need to be banned completely in terms of prohibition, that, or they need to be ruthlessly suppressed and ruthlessly controlled by the state. Um, and so he's, you know, there's, if most people know anything about Plato's Republic, they know about the allegory of the cave. The second thing they're most likely to know about Plato is that he was so radically opposed to storytelling, so viciously, monomaniacally um, uh, hostile to storytelling that he wanted to ban all the poets, just just denude society of all of the influence of the storytellers. Um, and he does write that, but he, he soon backs off of that idea. And he goes to the second form, like, you know, he goes away from prohibition of the drug and moves towards ruthless control and ruthless suppression. So he's, he, he ultimately decides that he only wants to ban the free poets, poets who won't produce propaganda for the state. 
And he basically sees all forms of storytelling in the society as, as a way to support the storyteller king in his efforts to produce a, a utopian uh, society. Is that how you understand uh, Plato? Um, that's how I understand one level of his argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I have to consider that it's being delivered. Ultimately, it's being created by one of the greatest dramatists in the history of literature. Yeah. Who wrote all of his philosophy in the form of dialogues. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, who created, in other words, created stories, right. Who is endlessly inventive and playful so that in the symposium, it's a story about a dinner party told by someone who heard the story from someone else who might've heard the story from a third person. Um, the Republic itself is Socrates telling a story about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talking about the power and dangers of Homer. And yet, of course, he quotes Homer incessantly yeah. throughout the, the Republic. Yeah. And yet there's certainly the case that reading in between the lines, I think it's a fair argument to say that Plato also believes Socrates was killed by people who believed what Aristophanes, in large part, what Aristophanes said about Socrates. Yeah, that's in a play. Too. Yeah, yeah. So there's all these things are at work. Um, you know, I I kind of I read Plato because I had to teach him. Uh-huh. I made myself uh, teach him so that I would read him finally. Yes, yeah. Um, it's a hard and read. I yeah. Uh, but it's the best way to read, right? Uh-huh. Is uh, but I kind of believe what I heard people say that Karl Popper said, mm-hmm. Plato said. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, um, and what I find is, of course, is someone with the very different views than than Karl. I think Karl Popper has no sense of humor, You're right? Um, right. And, and Plato does. So I think That's Plato. I don't know what Pla- I don't know what Plato actually believes about stories, but I did. I do know this That's that he right. thinks they're important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I um, there's so much of, of, about the book that I ended up about Socrates about Plato that I ended up uh, cutting, um, but I agree with everything you're saying. Um, I I'm looking at I just called up some an old excerpt of something that I cut out of the book <laughs> from the abattoir floor huh? from the abattoir floor, um, and this is really dumb of me to try to do this on the fly, so I won't do it. But you know, it's just just um, Scholars just don't know what Plato was saying, even after 2,400 years. Uh, there's just no agreement on things. And, you know, I sampled quite broadly from the scholarship on Plato yeah. and, the, and the Republic and on, you know, the, the historical figure of Socrates and so forth. And the spectrum of argument is kind of breathtaking, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and there's a reason for it. It's, as you say, it's a book that just contradicts itself. It's an attack on uh, storytelling through storytelling. That doesn't make any sense. That seems to yeah. undercut itself. And, you know, Socrates was a, was a terribly, uh, terribly addicted to leg pulling. You can't tell when he's yeah. winking at you. Uh, or not. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult, but I think you're right. I think he takes it uh, very seriously. And I do think that he is not kidding when he talks about the danger of storytelling to disrupt and disorder a democracy like the kind that he lived in and the kind that we live in. 
And he's right. Yeah. And he, 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 he's, and as you're, you're sort of, you're, you're coming down on this with your, you know, strong right fist. He's absolutely right mm-hmm. to realize the disordering impacts that are potential in storytelling. Right. Uh, that we fail to recognize that. I think this gets me thinking about, um, I don't know if you talk about this and now I can't look at my notes, but I kept writing down story, story is techne, um, mm. that there, there, there is perhaps, there's always a danger when you turn a story into a kind of technology into, uh, which is going to have a, an alt, uh, an intended effect. And we always end up stabbing ourselves with our own story in that way. Mm. Um, try that, try that one on me again. Well, I mean, this is, I, you know, I, I, I don't read Greek, so I don't know if this is what Plato's actually, if he ever refers to a story as a sort of techne. Mm. But when you're on the road with the storytelling consultants, they sure as hell are thinking of story as techne. Yeah. That it's, that it is, it is, um, it's a kind of a Rube Goldberg device. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it's a little, maybe it's a little elaborate. But, you know, if we just push the right lever and all the, 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 the cat will eventually, you know, be scared by the dog and jump on the, the scale and, you know, hit the Frisbee and, you know, it will eventually lead to an intended effect. Right. Um, right. And that's a very, it's a very seductive idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in some ways Plato shares it. The last thing that in the Republic is a story which has a real yeah. powerful idea to yeah. it. It's the story of eternal recurrence. Yeah. Uh, and, but the fact is we don't always know where, if the cat will jump on the scale and the Frisbee will hit the ping pong ball, which will hit the, it, right. there are always unintended consequences yeah. in stories. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, I, I think Plato was scared of, uh, story. I can. By the way, I, I I can hear people just hitting the off button on this podcast right now yeah, as we get deeper into this hole. But I think yeah, I think I Plato was, you know, very aware of the power of storytelling, which is why he wanted to abandon it. And then he said, "But how do I produce my utopia without it? Uh, if I think yeah. that this utopia has to be this incredibly socially en- engineered thing, and most of the things I want to engineer into it are kind of contrary to human nature." How can I convince people to go along with me? And the only tool he can think of is storytelling. Um, and so he doesn't, in the end, I don't think he eschews storytelling. I don't think he abandons it. I think he completely embraces it. Um, he just embraces it, as you said, as a sort of tool, as a tool of uh, massive social control. And this is completely consistent with modern scientific research on the power that stories hold and the power that stories can unleash. Um, Just all the evidence shows that if you really want to rouse people emotionally, rivet their attention, change how they think and feel and behave, uh, the best way to do it is by telling a powerful story. There's a catch there, though. And the catch is Mm -hmm. the story has to be good. Mm-hmm. The story has to be good. None of these special powers of story actually kick in unless the storyteller is good. And what what does good mean? You know, when a, when a critic talks about good, it's soupy, it's subjective, it's hard to define. But when ordinary people call a story good, what they're generally saying 
is that this story successfully casts the spell of narrative transportation. And narrative transportation is probably the best studied concept in story science. Narrative transportation is that delicious sensation. We all love this. It's one of our favorite things about being human, of opening our, a really good novel or turning on our favorite TV show and mentally teleporting out of our own mundane realities and into these alternative story worlds, whether it's a story world in a, in a novel or a history uh, narrative or a QAnon conspiracy theory. And narrative transportation is an authentically altered state of consciousness. This is another area where I uh, agree with Plato. Um, it's a kind of drug that reliably lulls us into this altered state of consciousness. And it's a state of uh, consciousness characterized by really rapt attention. We can pay close attention to a story for hours upon end and time just flies by. Nothing else has that sort of cognitive effect. And it's also a state of high suggestibility. Here's the danger. Uh, people are more open-minded when they're in storyland. Uh, and this can be a really good thing. But to put it a little more darkly, people are a lot more gullible when they enter into storyland. They're a lot more uh, open to being uh, molded and manipulated. Now, th this can actually be measured? Yeah, yeah. You can measure belief change. Yeah. So you can just say, um, just for instance, you know, you can say, get a bunch of people, have them fill out, you know, psychological surveys, personality surveys, uh, surveys about their views on certain issues, let's say gay marriage, and then have them watch a few episodes of Will and Grace and see if their attitudes towards homosexuals become more tolerant. And what has generally been found is that people's attitudes, uh, if they like the story, if the story achieves the goal of narrative transportation, that people's attitudes generally move in a story consistent direction. So if we watch a show like Will and Grace, where uh, homosexuals are treated as, you know, fully human people and uh, deserving all dignity and so forth, our, our views will move in that direction. Now, the catch is, if the story had suggested the opposite, um, that homosexuals were deviant uh, monsters and this needs to be suppressed and routed out of our societies, there's every reason to believe that people's <laughs> attitudes would move in that direction too. So it's always a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. um, what's the importance of, and you've alluded to this already, but of uh, agonistic structure? I wanted you to, it, this, this gets to what I think you were just saying about if we, well, but go on with. Agonistic what, structure. What is it, yeah. Why does it matter? Yeah. Well, okay. So just to step back slightly, um, let's define what a story is. Um, storytelling is often seen as this sort of wildly creative art form. And in many ways it is. But no matter where you go in the world, across all of planet Earth, and no matter when you go there, um, across all of time, across cultures, centuries, geographical barriers, you always find the same amazing thing. People tell stories. And on the whole, those stories are exactly like ours. They have the same basic predicaments, the same basic obsessions around sex and love and death and power, and they have the same basic structures. 
Stories, what's a story across cultures? Um, I think the most minimal definition of what a story is, is it's a problem solution structure. So stories focus on protagonists, uh, people, um, and their struggles. Stories are about trouble. Stories are not about people having good days. Stories are about people having bad days, often the very worst days of their entire lives and struggling to gut through. Um, you asked about agonistic structure, um, and I'm getting to that. Stories also have a, a very strong and predictable moralistic dimension. I'm not saying that stories always have a clear moral of the story. I'm not saying that they, they, they suggest they, they carry a morality that everyone can agree with, but they usually have some sort of ethical position. And this is usually dramatized in a conflict between the protagonists who have good morals and good values and the antagonists who have bad values and bad morals. Um, usually, in the end, the, the protagonists predominate. Again, a very strong cross-cultural tendency in storytelling is this phenomenon of poetic justice. And in fact, most of the energy of a story, the, the thing that keeps us reading, is our hope and our fears around poetic justice. We are desperately hoping that the protagonists will get what they deserve, a happy ending, and the antagonists will get what they deserve, some sort of punishment, some sort of come comeuppance. So this is agonistic structure. It's a tendency of stories to divide into a structure of protagonists in conflict with antagonists. Um, this is the most uh, classical story structure. Uh, and sometimes, especially in uh, more modern and sophisticated uh, storytelling, that structure is blurred up so that the, you know, you don't have these cartoonish good guys versus bad guys the good guys and the bad guys sort of, you know, intermingle. And it's kind of hard to tell them apart, for instance, like in a, an anti-hero show like uh, Breaking Bad, where Walter White has some really positive characteristics, but he's also a real bastard. So um, let's get to, uh, let's get to the history. Um, so there's a certain point you write the following and there's a exclamation point in the margin of my, my copy of your book. Yeah. Yeah. Narrative history, I propose can be defined as the imposition of the present on the defenseless corpse of the past. Please explain yourself. <laughs> Are you offended by that? Um, not as much as I probably should be, but go on. <laughs> it's a strong way of putting it, and it's a provocative way of putting it. Um, I guess, you know, an another thing I say... In I, mean, I, I would say that any kind of history can be the imposition of the present on the defenseless corpse of the past. I would, I mean, even lengthy volumes with like a separate appendix. Mm -hmm. So I don't yeah. think it's just narrative history. No, it's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I only have a few pages to spend on this, and I'm not a historian, so I am no, interested no, to hear what you think about it. We're talking about narrative here yeah. and, 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 and his stories. So this is, this is perfect. Okay. Um, yeah, another thing I say is, uh, this is a hard thing for me to know how to get into. But another thing I say is, in, in a similar vein, that it is conventional to think of science fiction as a form of speculative narrative that projects our current concerns about the world onto the future. 
So it's conventional to say that science fiction really isn't about those future people. It's about us. It's a reflection of us. And what I say in the book is it's also justifiable to see history as a form, a speculative narrative, not unlike science fiction, that projects our current concerns about the world back onto the past. And so I say that history, why is history always changing? Why is it always morphing and shifting uh, according to fashions and generations of historians that come through? And part of the reason history is always changing is that the evidence is always changing. We're digging up new artifacts. We're finding new documents. Um, we come up with superior uh, interpretation of old documents. But part of the reason history is always changing, always morphing in ways that really ought to be quite disturbing, I think, to professional historians who hope to get towards something like the truth. One of the reasons it's always shifting is because, I argue, history is sort of a funhouse mirror of the ever-changing present. It's always reflecting uh, present circumstances, uh, and especially um, present power struggles. So history is about a, lot of, about a lot of different things, but among other things, it is about sort of, it's, it's always set, it's about past tense events, but it seems to me that there's a case to be made that it is also, in general, about contesting present tense and future tense power. I think that, that this, what you're describing is the dichotomy at the heart of history, which is the dichotomy between history as a social science and history as a humanities. Um, you know, 19th century history, we've talked about this in the podcast before, very much creates this idea of history as a social science. It expands, it's trying to achieve ground truth, but history has its roots in the Italian Renaissance, uh, really. And it's uh, as a, a humanities, as a uh, as a moral reflection, uh, and a tried uh, attempt to understand oneself and understand mm -hmm. one's time by reflecting on the past. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm down with that. Um, I'm happy to be a, a humanist, and I there's a certain limitation on achi achieving ground truth in investigations of the past, which is makes. Um, makes the achievement of history as a social science, uh, I think, always just out of reach. Um, so uh, what I find most fascinating uh, is your proposal for history without villains, mm -hmm. which I think can be achieved even in narrative history. So could you describe that, that yeah, idea? Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is um, a way of thinking that I sort of stumbled over in the process of working on the book and really strikes me as being sort of the most practical recommendation <laughs> I have for people, for my, for my friends, for my colleagues, for society at large, when we're building our stories, not just history stories, but stories really of any kind yeah. or political stories, try to make them without the villains. And I sort of had this breakthrough from rewatching the film Babel. And I don't know if you remember this film. I don't know if it's like 20 years old, old Brad Pitt's in it. Uh, but the, the book is, I'm mean, sorry, the, the film is faithful to the universal structure of storytelling in one sense. It's about trouble, problems, danger, death, fear from beginning to end. 
all of the characters are stuck inside horrendous problems. But unlike a sort of the most classical story structure, there's no bad guys in the story to cause these problems. There's no villains. All of the bad things happen sort of just because. Little tumblings of chance, things people do to be nice that have these horrible unintended consequences of suffering. And I saw that it was possible uh, for storytellers to do without villainy altogether. Um, you didn't need villains to drive the plot of a story. And, in, and it made me think of, of, about a bigger question about the sort of uh, the, the artificiality of fictional villainy. Villains in stories, again, we're talking about there's all kinds of caveats we could make, but just in general, villains in stories tend to be sort of flat characters or sort of one dimensional, mm -hmm. while protagonists of story get to be round characters or multi dimensional. And so these villains are sort of artificial. They're not they're not they're not real. And this has been sort of um, embraced and understood by modern sophisticated fiction, where moral ambiguity is more likely to be worked into these stories. And I began to wonder if all the villains swaggering around in our histories were as artificial as the villains in our fiction. And I wondered if we could start creating our history stories uh, doing without villains altogether. And this seems okay in the abstract, but it immediately gets hard when you talk about specific historical incidents, like some of the worst stuff, like, you know, uh, Nazism or the Atlantic slave trade or uh, what else? Uh, you know, any, any, any instance of mass historical cruelty. Uh, how can you tell this story without naming and shaming uh, the victims? And I guess what I came up with is the, the concept of moral luck. The idea that we think of luck as something inherent, sorry, we think of morality as something inherent to our character. You're either a moral person or you're not. But philosophers have sort of questioned this in recent decades, and they said, you know, your, your moral behavior is really highly uh, dependent on your luck. If you happen to have been born, you know, in Germany in the early part of the 20th century, there's, you know, just in probabilistic terms, there's every likelihood that you would have sided with the Nazi party. If you happen to have been alive in the deep American South uh, at the time of the Civil War, just in probabilistic terms, there's every reason to believe that you would have been a Confederate. You were just lucky not to be born in a place and a time that would have put you on the wrong side of history. So I guess what I'm saying is, we are encouraged all the time to strive for empathy uh, for the wretched of the earth, the weak people, the poor people, the enchained people, the victimized people. And the moral imperative of that isn't hard to grasp. It's contained in that eternal ethical wisdom there, but for the grace of God go I. But we have a sort of failure of imagination and when it comes to the victimizers of history. We have a failure to realize that when it comes to the slavers and the inquisitors and the conquistadors and the people who committed genocide, that's quite obviously where we'd have gone to if not for the grace of God. Um, so I think when we villainize historical malefactors, we're implicitly saying that I know 
that if I was in his shoes, I would have behaved differently. I would have resisted that ideology. I would have resisted the violence. And I find the moral vanity of this kind of pathetic. It's a sort of morally masturbatory make-believe where you cast yourself Whoa. back in history. That's even that's even stronger than I said to my undergraduates. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it is. Uh, this is why, and this is why we love narratives like Howard Zinn on the on the right. left and yeah. and Bill Bennett on the right. I mean, yep. this is where you. Uh, uh, this is deeply. This is deeply attractive, especially when you're 18. Oh, yeah. um, you know, this is uh, and before you get some operational mileage on you. Mm-hmm. And you begin to believe that, yeah, you can really, you obviously would not be one of those people and you would not make compromises. It's interesting. I mean, right. you could find like, go back to Germany, you can find people like the Kreisau circle who certainly were yes. not in favor of the regime, but then you say, well, they didn't do enough. Yeah. Um, we can always find things that we always want to find something pure and noble. Um, yeah. That is like us. Yeah. Well, you can you can always find, you know, if you go back to some uh, to the Nazi example, for instance, uh, you know, the resistance against Nazism was 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 pretty thin. Uh, yep. There were uh, resistors. Uh, there were uh, people who stood up to the movement. Um, they tended to also be anti-Semites. They weren't able mm-hmm. to get outside of that story. Um, but. They were rare, and or they were, or they were, or they were communists who were completely okay with mass murder as long as as, as the other yeah. guy was doing it, right. and they and they shut up as soon, in, on September on August thirtieth, nineteen thirty nine. Then they yeah. were okay with Hitler for two years. So that's yeah. that's another problem. Yeah. So when people when people assume that they would have been one of the good guys of history, that they would have been among the heroes who who not only had the the perceptiveness to see through the sort of Nazi illusion, to see through the propaganda. They were living in this sort of fascistic uh, Truman show where all of their inputs were telling them the same story, that this is a story of Aryan knights locked in this uh, battle uh, for for humanity. It's humanity's last great stand. Um, and this was a very... Uh, powerful and transporting narrative for Germans. But even if you th- say, I would have seen through that, um, would you have had the bravery to actually stand up? Are you a hero? That's why I always want to ask. Are you a hero? Are you a luminous, outstanding, moral hero willing to sacrifice everything, including your life and the lives of your fam- family members for an unpopular principle? This is a principle that everyone in your social group disagrees with. Um, once you stand up, you will be branded as an enemy of the people. You'll quite possibly get a noose around your neck. If, if this is so, if this is who you are, then I believe that you would not have sided with the Confederacy. And I believe you would have not you know, sided with the Nazis. Um, there are people who did, and they are brave, and they're heroes, and they should be celebrated. Uh, but for the most part, uh, people conform themselves to their cultural atmosphere. Yeah, that's right. Um, we need to start wrapping up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you, this is not, this is a, it's a great book. I hope it's a best selling book, but it's not the kind of book that has like a list of how to's and the last chapter. Right. Um, and I, I did find myself wishing for another book called something like story hygiene. Yeah. Um, yeah. and because 
part of never trusting a storyteller is the corollary, which we've already said stories, because never trust a storyteller or never give a storyteller your complete trust because stories are powerful. Um, and I think also, um, be careful of how the stories that you tell, I think is, is would be part of the story hygiene. Mm-hmm. Is that, um, how you, that stories require discipline, both as tellers and also as listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, tried to come up with a how to list at the end and, and did, there are some, there are some recommendations at the end of the book, but it is a bit thin. I agree. And the reason is, it's okay. well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to explain it. The reason is, is I'm a little bit pessimistic, to be honest. I'm a little bit uh-huh. pessimistic about our capacity to change anything about <laughs> the way that humans have always told stories and always, um, and, and, and the, the, these structures of storytelling, for instance, villainization that, uh, really drive powerful storytelling. And so, Let's imagine that you and I disarm. We stop, uh, we stop telling villain narratives that people really love. Who says that the other side is going to disarm? They're not going to. They're going to, they're going to defect and keep telling stories in ways that are known to gather the most attention and rouse the most emotion. Um, so I am uh, somewhat pessimistic. I do think that people who want to be responsible citizens can take a a few basic steps. Uh, The first step, you know, I had this nightmare when I was writing the book, this sort of vision in my head. And it was a vision of people reading the book and happily ticking off all the ways that my points about the dangers of narrative applied to the people and to the ideas and the stories that they don't like, while mm-hmm. never thinking to turn that skepticism around on themselves. And poking holes in the other guy's story is really easy. What we have to do, if we want to be good citizens, is get into the habit of trying to poke holes in our stories. That's hard. Yeah. The stories that give us our meaning, that uh, animate our side of the political divide. These problems of narrative psychology are not a them problem that applies to whoever your them is. These problems of narrative psychology are an us problem, as in they are an everyone problem. We are all have this tendency to get misled by narrative. And I just see no acknowledgement of that, uh, no realization of that anywhere on the political spectrum. There's no searching criticism of our side's story. So that's one thing. Uh, more skepticism towards our own stories. Never trust a storyteller. That means never trust yourself. Don't trust mm-hmm. those stories in your own head. Uh, the second uh, suggestion I would make to people, and this will surprise you perhaps, it's that I think we should continue to tell stories. Uh, stories are not just the big problem. They're also at the heart of the only hopeful solutions. Stories really do have special power to enhance empathy, to make connections, to bring people together, to build bridges across divides. But 
only if we can resist telling them in ways that are guaranteed not to work. And what I mean by this is that we have to resist this tendency to draw people on the other side as the villains of the story, and we are the, the good guys, uh, the white hats versus the black hats. Um, right now, I feel like in America, much else of the much uh, else of the world, we are villainizing one another in the most primitive and the most dangerous ways. And this is not a recipe for social progress. This is not a recipe for bringing us back together. This is a recipe for blowing up the few bridges uh, that we have left. It's a recipe for prosecuting a civil war of storytelling that I fear, and maybe this sounds hysterical to you, but I fear uh, could escalate towards something closer like the real thing. My guest today has been Jonathan Gottschall. He's the author of The Story Paradox, How Our Love of Stories Builds Societies and Tears Them Down. Jonathan Gottschall, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting.